Greetings of love, friends. It's a joy to be with you. Brothers and sisters, we have a common father. That's what makes us brothers and sisters. We also have common loved ones, which Brother Dwight um, referenced. I feel... um, I feel a sense of indebtedness to you as a congregation. Um, Dennis's, Dan's, Ryan, have all been a tremendous blessing in our congregation. And a few weeks ago, we studied from Ephesians chapter 5, and we see there that a person comes to maturity, to, to fruitfulness through the local congregation. And so I praise God for... Um, his work through you um, for the blessing that Dennis's and Dan's and Ryan have been in our congregation. Yes, it's a joy to be able to worship with you this morning. I do ask for your forbearance with my voice. You may have to put extra effort into the listening part this morning. I felt impressed to share with you this morning a um, a truth that has challenged me just in the last few days in studying. Um, thank God for the power of His truth to just humble humble us and bring us into conformity to His will. And I felt like He was working on me in that area, and I just like to. Pass that along to you this morning. I would imagine that all of you appreciate mom and dad, more or less. Have you ever realized that you just were on a different page with them, from them? Maybe you just, as much as you have in common, there's maybe an issue that you do not have in common where you see something differently. Now, if you think about um, the relationship between you and your parents, you know, you, you share a lot of DNA, a lot of genetics, which kind of predispose you to having the same mindset as they do. Um, if you do have an appreciation for them, then you're going to tend toward their perspective. And then you have all the influence, all the time that they have, you have spent together, um, where they have been shaping you. Thank you. That is influencing your perspective. But there are times when even those factors do not, um, you're not a clone of your parents. There was a an acquaintance of mine was moving, and his two new residents and his father was there helping with the project, and they were moving. Um, I think they were moving small tools and stuff into the shed, and he was giving very specific instructions about how this was to stand and that to stand and which corner this goes in and how the tools hang on the wall and very fastidious about organization. 
the son was. And his dad just said, he didn't learn that from me. There was uh, there was a, a little bit of a different value system. I, maybe he made an improvement on dad's value system. But we do we do notice that from time to time. Jesus faced that with his disciples at times, where he noticed a disconnect between his values and and his followers. Um, in John 14, he's trying to explain things to his disciples, and Philip asks a question about seeing the Father, showing Jesus showing them the Father. And Jesus says, have I been so long time with you, and you, you don't know me? We, we haven't covered this yet? In Luke chapter 9, um, the, Jesus and the disciples are traveling. They're heading towards Jerusalem. They're coming to a village, and um, they send someone on ahead to reserve some motel rooms. And they say, oh, you're, you're headed to Jerusalem. No, you're not welcome here. You can go find lodging somewhere else. And James and John come to Jesus and say, well, how about we burn burn the village down? Let's call down fire and put them in their place. And Jesus said, you didn't get that from me. You, you don't know what spirit you're of. That, that doesn't come from what you learned around me. <clears throat> the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. I have to wonder if Jesus ever experiences that with his followers today. Where there is a disconnect of values. And I would trust not today we have the gift of the Holy Spirit. The very Spirit of Jesus indwelling his people. There should be no disconnect of values. But I would like us to just consider the possibility this morning. I'd invite you to Luke chapter 15. Oh, a small correction. My text said, your traditional 70-minute message, not mine. Luke chapter 15, verse 11 through the end of the chapter. And he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in the land and he began to be in want. 
And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thine hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring hither the fatted calf, and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead, and is alive again. He was lost, and is found. And they began to be merry. Now his elder son was in the field, and as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants, and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry, and would not go in. Therefore came his father out, and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, and neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment, and yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends, But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad. For this thy brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. There are different themes, different storylines that we find in this passage that are similar to ones we could identify today. There's the the story of the rebellious son parting ways with dad. There's the story of a crisis that leads to repentance. There's the restoration of an erring, wayward child. There's the struggle of whether or not to forgive. And then, toward the end of the story, we have the tension between the faithful son and his father. And we want to focus on that this morning. The title of the message is A Thrifty Son and a Prodigal Father. 
want you to just think about their relationship for a minute here. This was a father-son relationship. We talked about how that works. This was a long-term relationship. They knew each other very well. I don't, it doesn't give specifics. You know, they could be co-owners of the family estate, the family farm, um, co-managers. It would seem like, um, the son is definitely involved in it. The son had learned his values and his management skills from working under his father. And I'd like for us to consider what we can learn here about the father's values. What were his priorities? He clearly was a skillful manager. He was, um, he was very successful. Um, the, the wayward son references all of the hired servants who are doing well. Even the servants were doing well. And so this was a man of resources. He was a man who knew how to manage and um, had good business ethic. But something else that's clear is that his heart was not in the checkbook. That's not... Um, That's not the priority. The priority of this father is maintaining relationships in the family. I think probably even beyond the family. It sounds like he had good relationships among his servants. When his youngest son came to him and asked for the inheritance, rather than cause a, a ruckus, he is, he is willing to, to be compliant where there was, no, um, there was no ethical breach for him to simply comply with his son's request. He was willing to do it. We can see it where he was focused when his son decided to return. He was not, um, did not have his nose in the bank statements, but when his son is returning home... He sees him afar off. Obviously, this was something that was a a, a burden on his heart. It was something of interest to him. And that's um, that's where his attention was. We see it in how he responded to his repentant son. If he had a... If his heart was in the finances, and the well-being of the estate, I would think there would be some questionings about, so what happened with all that money that, that you took off with? Where, how, give an account for the way things have gone. We have no indication that that was the case, that that was the focus. The focus was on restoring the relationship that had been broken. <clears throat> We also see um, his values in how the extent of the graciousness that he poured out on his son. It doesn't specifically tell us that the father said, I forgive you to his son, but he demonstrated it with the, the lavish giving that he poured out on him. Taking his, the resources of his estate 
and generously blessing his son with them. Do you know what the word prodigal means? I think I tend to associate it with rebellion and running away. And the word prodigal means wasteful. It means um, exceedingly, sp- spending exceedingly um, to the point of recklessness or or wasting. Second definition is connected to that, and that is extremely generous or a willingness to give almost to the the point of being imprudent without considering my own well-being but simply giving to a point of um, to a point of what others may feel is extreme it's a definition of prodigal we have a prodigal father here who um, is more focused on pouring out the blessing of graciousness on other people than he is on maintaining um, the financial status of his estate. Let's turn our attention to the elder son's priorities. So now we kind of have a picture of where the father is. Just take a look at the elder son for a moment here. And the question is, as he becomes the inheritor of this estate, has he learned the father's value system? Is he going to run the estate in the same, according to the same principles as his father did? It would seem that he, somewhere along the line, had developed his own priorities. His priorities were frugality and thriftiness. We should not be wasting money and resources on an unnecessary party for an unnecessary person. And then he brings up the horror of the wasted resources of his younger brother. He said, the biggest crime here is that this young man went and blew the family fortune. And it's interesting if you pay attention to the wording there. See if I can find it here. Verse 30. This thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots. He was taking a second-hand offense in what was his father's loss. He said, it was your living, but I'm upset about it, and you're not. So he is upset at his father's generosity. He's upset at his brother's lack of management. Another one of his priorities is fairness. He did not feel that justice was being meted out. Shouldn't younger brother have to squirm a little bit? 
He made all these mistakes, and he comes home, and is just welcome back. This is not justice. And another one of his priorities was recognition. Doesn't anybody see how long I've been here working? And nobody's paying any attention to me. I think that faithful living should be rewarded more than foolish people repenting and coming home. So we have a a stingy, thrifty son with a prodigal father. We see we see here they had lived together for how long? They had worked together, but at this point, this specific situation, they both realized that their values actually were not aligned. What are the results of that? There was anger. I had to wonder, who was he more angry at? I think he was angry at both of them. He was angry at his brother, and he was angry at his father. Both of them were in the wrong Both of them were prodigal, which did not line up with his set of values. Another one of the results of this split of values is that he passed up an opportunity to restore a relationship with his brother. There was a barrier there that he was not willing to cross. There was an opportunity that had not been there for years. I don't know how long it was. I would imagine it took him some time to go through all that money. But there's an opportunity that he hadn't had for a long time. And he was willing to pass that opportunity up to have a relationship restored. Because he was not willing to align his values with the Father's. Another one of the results is that it brought attention in his relationship with his father. Up to this point, I don't know what their relationship was like. It seemed like probably they coexisted very nicely working together. But he was willing to have actually a division between him and his father over this issue. Because his values were not compatible with his father's. We get to the end of the story, just before the end of the story. And we have these two men who've worked together for so long. And one of them's on the inside of the house, and the other's on the outside. And the question, it begs the question, who is the lost son now? We have a contrite, unworthy, repentant son on the inside of the house with a father. And we have a stubborn, self-righteous, hard-working son who feels his own value on the outside apart from both of them. 
Jesus didn't explain his parable. There's no interpretation given. And I, I think it's, it's uh, so painfully obvious it barely needs interpretation. I do want it to warn us of the possibility of ending up in the older brother's shoes. Is it possible that we can invest ourselves so deeply in the Father's work and yet have a different value system than he does? Not fully embracing his values. And like in this story, I'm going to say that the crisis that will reveal whether or not our values are aligned are the crisis that happens in a difficult relationship. When we're faced with a difficult relationship, that is the test of whether or not we have picked up the heartbeat of the Father or whether we are charting our own course with our own priorities. What are God's priorities? What are his values? His priorities also are on restoring broken relationships. The context of this parable, um, the first two verses of the chapter, then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured and said, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And he continues into three, three parables explaining why he is doing what he's doing. It did not make sense to these older brothers standing around. The question is, it doesn't even say that Jesus went out looking for these publicans and sinners. It says they came crowding around him. Why is that? I think it's because they could sense that that's where his heart was. His heart was to restore broken people and broken relationships. And they were drawn to that. I don't think they were crowding around the scribes and Pharisees all that much. The priorities of our Father are restoring broken relationships, people who have broken relationship with their God, and restoring relationships between people. Jesus responds with three stories here. We read the last of the three. But one thing we see in in the first two, for sure, the parable of the lost sheep and the story of the lost coin, is that When something is lost, you drop everything to find it. When it's important to you, this becomes important. The lost coin, why don't you say, well, you know, hopefully I bump into it somewhere. If it's of of significance, it's going to be worth seeking after. And that can be applied to both people who have wandered away from God or people who have um, have, a, have had a falling out between each other. 
God's priority is on restoring broken relationships. And I think he would expect that um, these stories reflect his people's values when we see those things happening. Do we simply continue on and hope that, well, hopefully down the road somewhere something will happen and things will get fixed up? Or does it become a priority? The significance of restoring broken relationships is a source of great joy. And and that idea is brought out in each of these three stories. Um, In verse 6, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep. Verse 9, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I had lost. Verse 32, It was meet that we should make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. If you want to know what gets Jesus excited, it's restoring broken relationships. When what is lost becomes found. You can contrast that with verse 7, where he says what doesn't particularly bring him joy. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Those sons don't bring a whole lot of joy. It is the the joy of seeing what was lost being restored. There's a beautiful example of this whole um, of, of God's priorities being lived out in chapter 19 of the, the time when Jesus encountered Zacchaeus, a man who was unworthy and worthless in so many eyes. And yet that was where... That was where the crowd stopped. That was where the procession stopped because the priority was restoring what was lost. And great joy came that day. Verse 9 of chapter 19. This day is salvation. Come to this house for as much as he also is a son of Abraham. He has been reintroduced into the family of faith. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. This is my thesis. I did not come to spend time with a whole bunch of people who enjoy being around me but really don't need me. My purpose is to seek and to save that which was lost, to restore a fallen Jew to the family of Abraham to restore him to God and to restore him in his relationships and his community. Another one of God's priorities is sacrificial grace to the undeserving. I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 8. I'd just like you to lay your eyes on a few verses here. 
Romans 8, verse 31. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Verse 38 and 39, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Peter said, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. There is not one treasure in God's palace that he has withheld from his children. Paul asks a rhetorical question. If he would give the one thing that is most precious to him, his only son, if he would freely give that to us, what of lesser value would he withhold? And Peter answers the rhetorical question and says, he hath given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. There is not anything that he has withheld. The elder son was bitter that his father wasted a fat calf ready for the market and a robe on his son. Our father wasted his own son. There is not an ounce of thriftiness in God's heart. But he opens his treasuries and pours them out on mankind. We too have a prodigal father, exceedingly generous. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How many of you have banked on God's generosity in keeping that promise? You remember the time when you came to him on your knees and you were counting on him to be able to freely forgive. We probably don't think about how painful it is sometimes for God to forgive. But we were counting on the fact that he would, that he would keep his promise to forgive. I just ask us this morning, are we still there? Do we still see, do we still marvel at how generous he has been with us and of how unworthy we are of his generosity? It's, It's humbling to think, to just review and think back how generous our father has been with us as, as unworthy sons. But now the question is, 
What have, what have I done with all that generosity that God has, has poured into my life? All the graciousness He has bestowed on me. You know, honestly, probably most of us are quite a few years past the welcome home party. We were there at one time when we were there kneeling on the front porch. We're quite a few years past that. We've put in quite a few years in the field of hard manual labor in the kingdom, if you will. And is it possible in that time that my values have separated from the Father's? Is it possible that I've developed my own? Have I become too thrifty and stingy with my fellow man? I would just say the evidence of where our value system is shows up in how we respond in difficult relationships. That is the proof of the pudding that tells us whether or not our values still align with our Heavenly Fathers. I have a few questions here just to help us to ask ourselves, just to test ourselves to see where our values are. Number one, is restoring broken relationships a top priority to me? Now, I'm going to qualify that in saying I don't think we're called to wade into everyone else's business all the time. But is it a matter of concern? Is it a matter of prayer? Is it a matter of attention? If, if, if I am one of the parties that's involved in the broken relationship, then it does need to be um, something that where I'm actively pursuing restoration. Number two, are there relationships that just aren't worth restoring, in my opinion, where there's not enough value added to be worth the effort to to seek after restoration. Number three, are there relationships I would prefer not be restored? Or I'm actually going to maybe stand in the way of having that built back together. Number four, do I grieve at the personal cost of investing in others? Number five, is there a subconscious grading scale of who is deserving and who is undeserving of my attention or my care? Number six, do I ever begrudge God's willingness to freely forgive someone? May it be especially someone who has hurt me. Um... It just doesn't seem right that it's just washed away. The verse seven, uh, number seven is connected with that. Am I more interested in justice being served than in grace being extended? Number eight, do I ever resent signs of God's blessing on others? 
And even even good upstanding brothers in the church. Is there ever a time when I I resent seeing that God's blessing is being poured out on their lives? Maybe it's in in material ways, in business and finance, that I can see that um, things are going well. Maybe I see someone else being recognized in their, for their service in the church and their in the work of the Lord. Or maybe there's real clear evidence of fruit of the Spirit that other people take notice of me. And it just, it just bugs me that God's being so generous with someone else. Do I resent unrecognized sacrifice to the church and others? Am I thinking, shouldn't someone throw me a party every once in a while? Lastly, number 10, do I ever feel distant from God on account of my relationships? I hope the answer to the first question was yes and all the rest were no. In the case that you uh, do see some unfortunate signs of thrifty elder brother syndrome, take heart. Remember the Father's priorities in restoring relationships? We didn't look at one of the most bright examples of that from this passage. The older son was angry and would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. He was not content to have an older brother standing on the outside of the door. But he initiates restoring that relationship. He does not wait for him to come in the door and join the party. He goes out looking for him and says, what's going on here? The older son, I don't think he even realized his need, but the father is there responding before he even does he entreated him. The word there, parakaleo, is to call, to call near, to come alongside, to invite, to beseech. And he comes out and he speaks reasonable words with him and says, won't you think sensibly about this? Let's not have an emotional reaction here. Is this, is what you, is your perspective here a reasonable one? That word entreat is the verb form of the noun, the name for the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the one who comes alongside. And that is the role of the Holy Spirit today. He comes alongside stubborn elder brothers and taps them on the shoulder and says, is this the right response? Why don't you come in and be restored in your relationship with me, in your relationship with your unworthy younger brother. It's me. It's right and fitting that we should be glad, that we should rejoice, that we should pour out our resources, extending grace to this brother who is dead and is alive again. May God help us to carry his values in our relationships.